Welcome to Bread and Poppies, a show about why drugs are good, capitalism is bad, and what to do about it. Hello friends, comrades, and people hate listening to this because you saw me make a TikTok about communism and got really mad about it and clicked the link in my profile to find other stuff to get mad at. I'm Hilary Agro. I'm an anthropologist who studies drugs and our relationship to them as individuals, as a society, and as a species. I also study activism and organizing by drug users against prohibition and capitalism. Today is a lighter episode than the last two. Society is, you know, on fire, and it's really important that people listen to the stories of people who have been directly harmed by the war on drugs. So if you haven't listened to my interviews with Daniel Musig on the previous two episodes yet, please do. But today what I have for you is not exactly optimism per se, but something even better, strategy. We need hope in our lives so we don't give up the fight against prohibition and capitalism. But what I find really motivating is talking through exactly how we're going to approach that fight. Given today's subject matter, I should make it very clear that I'm speaking metaphorically when I say the word fight. Because today we're going to answer the age-old question, guns, are they good or are they bad? Well, okay, it's obviously going to be more complex than that. I'm an anthropologist. Anytime I seem to be doing a reductionism, I promise it's only because of character or time limits on social media. But this is my podcast, so here I can do whatever I want. Just rail a bunch of complexity and get loaded on nuance and subtlety. So Taylor Genovese and Dick Powis are two anthropologist colleagues of mine, and I brought them on the show to talk about whether socialists should arm ourselves legally, of course. You know how I feel about law-breaking. We respect the law here on Bread and Poppies, uh, and also what gun laws should look like and what role guns should play in leftist movements. Rest assured that this is all theoretical, just a bunch of academics talking about hypothetical situations because that's what we do for fun. I am not advocating for or encouraging anything, and I do not condone violence. We are talking about gun ownership and training here, not uh, so much the use of guns. But in any case, we're just we're just thinking and talking. It's all jokes. It's parody. All of this discussion is taking place within the context of playing Minecraft, uh, etc. So enjoy the interview, and if you have opinions on guns and leftism, please comment on the Bread and Poppies Twitter posts about this episode, because I love hearing people's thoughts. If you want to support my work, which is deeply appreciated and also very deeply needed because I'm paying by the hour for childcare while I record these episodes, uh, or you have questions or topics that you'd like me to make a TikTok about or include in a podcast episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash hillaryagro. There's a link in the show description. All right, you ready? Let's do this. Hey guys thanks for joining me today thanks for having us yeah thanks so uh today we have a special treat uh where i am going into this episode acknowledging that i have this instinctive feeling opinion you know you know, when you have one of those opinions that you're like i don't know if this is really right but like it's just kind of how i feel and uh, I'm going to get my two friends, colleagues, and comrades here to uh, try to change that opinion because it's, I know it's misinformed, but I still feel that way. And what we're talking about today is uh, guns. Are they good or are they bad? I think they're bad. I think that basically nobody should have them, uh, <laughs> but I'm willing to change my mind about this. And obviously because um, my colleagues here are anthropologists, uh, nothing is ever as simple as good and bad. So we'll, we'll get into the deconstruction of that. 
But um, yeah, so we're here today with Taylor Genovese. He is an anthropology PhD candidate at Arizona State University. And can you um, give me the little spiel for what you're studying? Because it's really interesting, but it was too long for me to, me to say in a nutshell. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I study a uh, political theology kind of conglomerate that wasn't really an organization, but uh, in, in Russia in the 1880s called the Russian Cosmists who advocated for unlimited travel throughout space and human immortality for all. And I look so cool. at the way that those beliefs have traveled through time and the way that capitalism and Silicon Valley has uh, has both hijacked that and um, used those ideas uh, for very different uh, uh, political economies and very different kind of utopian visions uh, because they're obviously quite closed off uh, in the Silicon Valley version of cosmism. So that's kind of what mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking at. So basically like Soviet utopianist, good Elon Musk, bad. Yeah. In, in a way, but the, the, the cosmos actually started before the Soviet union. So it was kind of yeah, early yeah. socialist movements uh, in Russia. And then, during the revolution, it actually took off quite a bit. And uh, uh, even though we're here to talk about guns, I can spew on this forever. But there was a yeah, really cool we'll, group we'll called have the you back on, maybe. Anarchists <laughs> who took a hold of this and uh, and said that we don't need like any of the theological elements of this. And we should all just travel through space and settle oh. on red Mars and create a utopian, uh, a utopia on Mars of all of our dead relatives that would be able to be resurrected and we could all oh, live on shit. Mars in a communist utopia. Oh my God. Okay. Well, this is really interesting. So uh, I want to talk more about that uh, at some point. We're going to put a pin in that because I actually have so many more questions about that, but we'll get very sidetracked. We should, um, we should do an Elon Musk bad episode. Oh yes, we should definitely do that. Totally. Um, yeah. And so also here is Dick Powis. Uh, he's an anthropologist at the University of South Florida in public health, and he specializes in maternal and child health and gender, kinship, labor, social support. These are all really great uh, things that anthropologists study, and he does a great job with that. And um, one thing I want to note is he did his, his PhD, his dissertation research on expectant fathers in Senegal. And I've always found that work to be really cool because uh, there's a lot of attention that's rightly paid to expectant, uh, you know, like birthing parents. Um, but the actual experience of like partners and like the, the, the fatherhood experience, um, is really understudied. So that's, uh, that's work that he has previously done. And, um, yeah, so we're, these are two good friends of mine. And, um, a, a while ago, the reason we're doing this now is a while ago, uh, I had, yeah, mentioned something about how, like, uh, I don't know, guns are bad. And they were like, well, actually, as a leftist, you should have a bit more of a subtle, like a bit more complexity in your opinions on this thing. And I was like, but I don't want to because they scare me. So we're going to we're going to address that today. Um, much like a uh, little spoiler for an episode I'm, I'm hoping to do in the future. Uh, and I, I know what people are going to immediately react when I'm about to say this. But I have a leftist comrade, friend of mine, who was like, crypto is good, actually. I know, I know. So I'm going to have I'm going to have him on and we'll see if he can change my mind on that. That might be a harder sell. But, you know, wow. we'll see. So, yeah. So thanks for joining me. And um, so we, we have uh, I decided that because all of my arguments uh, 
for like really strict gun control and against guns are based in like just my effective reaction to the existence of guns. Uh, we asked on on Twitter for some better arguments, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use those. Um, do you have Do you have any opening sort of like things you want to throw out there? Um, well, I think I think what's really important to uh, foreground is that like the idea of guns as a concept and as material objects are obviously going to vary quite a bit culture to culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the kind of disgust for guns comes out in, in the United States and, and Canada too, um, comes out of a history of these tools being used by white colonial settlers right and and the disgust in that respect is justified however when you dig into some of the history of of uh how these tools have been used by liberation movements and how then the white settler colonial institutions have reacted against it uh you start to see some of those nuances so like modern gun control only came about after the black panthers uh, staged their Capitol demonstration oh. of carrying guns to the California Capitol. And who was the one that initiated gun control? Ronald Reagan, so, which is quite surprising oh. when you think of him as this kind of like, you yeah. know, uh, individualist. Um, so these reactions. And just the way that he's been mythologized among the right to basically, you know, they, they, they treat him the way that they treat the biblical Jesus Christ. They just, they take selectively whatever is going to support their current mm. progressive opinions. Yeah. Do you my, want to add on to that Dick? Yeah. Yeah. I, so the reason that I initially wanted to do this, uh, and, and something that I still strongly believe now is that the conversation about guns, about gun control uh, the language and the rhetoric that gets thrown around by all parties involved is not that different from the same exact conversation and rhetoric and everything that gets thrown around about drugs. Yes. Okay. And, I was going to get into this too. This is my motivation as well as I feel like I'm a I hypocrite. I feel like that's my, my entree with you. Yeah. Is to sort of like, if we think about this in terms of, there are some differences, some very important differences, yes. but but a lot of it is the same and a lot of it and and the history of gun control and the war on drugs are very much tied together yeah. through racial politics, through um, uh, the idea of like super predators and mm -hmm. the trope about like the south side of Chicago and yeah, all of those more things. panics. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And that's, that's been in the back of my mind, too. Um, and it's something that people, you know, when I do the thing that I do all day, which is like argue with people about drug prohibition on the internet, and it's often something that people bring up, like, well, you know, um, then should, should all guns just be available and like, you know, whatever, and free for all. And it, that's not what we're saying about um, drug prohibition, either, like, like, or like drug legalization, either. We're not saying that it should just be like, you know, there should just be vending machines on the street uh, that anyone can access because obviously we need to prevent um, children and minors uh, from accessing in a lot of cases. And um, but but at the same time, it's 
and and yeah and just the fact that like prohibition doesn't work like you can't actually stop these things uh but it but like you mentioned like there are also some some really important differences like drugs are not designed to hurt and guns are like that's and and people kind of like try to try to deny that and try oh they're just like a tool like yeah like a knife is a tool a knife can hurt a knife can also cook you dinner but like a gun is specifically designed to harm living creatures like that's what it's for um so which is not necessarily a bad thing like that's i'm not like once again i don't want to imbue these objects with with morality um because we are human beings we've been like harming other living creatures for since our existence because we you know eat meat um or, or most humans have have done that so it's it's not that um it's like inherently a bad thing, but it's just different. Like a drug is intended to like alter your consciousness and a gun is intended to harm. So yeah, I'm just not sure how to, how to factor that, that stuff in. But I guess in the end it's like, yeah, it's sort of like wanting to be pragmatic about, about access and, 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 and about who prohibition impacts, which I think is, you know, um, ties back into all the the racial politics stuff is that whenever you prohibit these things, um, the people that are impacted are mm-hmm. uh, the most marginalized people and also like radicals because that's you know what they want to use these these laws uh, like the, the, when when we're talking about um, laws specifically being used to uh, disenfranchise marginalized populations, it's not just like by coincidence or because like racism is fun to like the people in power. it's like, mm. It's, it's, it's because of power dynamics. It's because like they can, you know, in terms of drugs, they can use prohibition to disenfranchise like certain populations and like take away people's right to vote and like disrupt communities and all that kind of thing. And I guess, um, so what is the political utility of, of gun control, gun prohibition? So I'm curious to, I have an answer and Mm -hmm. a sort of like hypothetical answer and and we can talk about that. I'm curious to know if among the arguments that you solicited, if you found like, which ones did you find compelling? Most compelling. Okay. That's, that's, that's a good question. Okay. So there were, there were some good ones. Because I, I thought of one. I actually Mm -hmm. have a good leftist argument. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hold a lot of water. But so, I'm sympathetic to it, and we yeah. can talk about it later. But I'm curious to know, like, what? Yeah. You so, so there were some good arguments. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think we, we, yeah, we should address them. And I will say, just to start, um, you know, I think uh, the opinion that I'm going into this with isn't that like we need to like get rid of like it's not so much that we. I feel like we don't need to get rid of all guns. Like, if I could just like snap my fingers and have every gun on the planet disappear, mm. I would probably do that without a second thought. Uh, wait, no, I'd have to have a second thought because I don't want people who live in areas with polar bears to not have guns. Fuck, this is difficult. It's complicated. Anyways, I would want most of the guns to be gone. However, that's not a realistic thing. And like, we can't necessarily do that. Um, and so, yeah, my, I guess my opinion is basically like heavily regulated, but then also who does the regulating and who's affected by that? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's tough. So, Yeah. It's, really it's a tricky one. in a corner here. God yeah. damn it. <laughs> uh, well, I did admit that going into this, I, it's just not an issue that I've, I've thought deeply enough about. So that's what we're here to do. So the arguments against gun control. 
or sorry, against uh, against the proliferation of guns, against you know arguments for mm-hmm. gun control. We'd be powerless against the state in an actual revolution because weapons technology is so vastly advanced to date, to advanced today, and the state has all of it. So this is an argument that's coming from the idea that leftists don't need to arm ourselves uh, because, um, you know, it's like the the idea of like an armed revolution is not something that's going to happen when the state has all of this technology. And so that's that's an argument that I've seen a lot. I would, my response is, uh, tell that to Vietnam. And tell that even recently, tell that to the Zapatistas, uh, who still have control over their autonomous zones in Chiapas, who went against the Mexican state, which also has bombs and planes, air forces, navies, armies, and they still control their territory. And they were able to control their territory because they armed themselves. There's a ton of historical examples of people that are armed with barely anything, uh, but firearms, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, small, small arms. Yeah. Right. yeah. As small it would arms. be known. So rifles, so, pistols, those kinds of things. Okay. Right. So two things. Um, one, now I'm kind of curious whether or not those historical narratives have been downplayed in the favor in, in, in the service of like, getting people to think the way that this person who brought this up and the way I low-key think is that like, well, it's just, it's not even worth fighting because the person with the bigger gun always wins, you know, that kind of narrative, if there's some utility to why that um, propagates. But then my other question is, um, or, or sort of the, the thing that I would, I would bring up as, you know, my role as the skeptic here uh, is people, you know, yes, Vietnam, good example. Um, the Zapatistas, I don't know nearly as much about as, as a leftist who has deep ties to Mexico. Um, but the idea that like weapons technology is just like so far advanced now, even just in the last 20 years, like just drones and like, you know, like everything Mm -hmm. that exists now in the arsenal of like, particularly the U S I don't know about the Mexican state, but that like, would that make a difference? I mean, we can look at... Iraq and Afghanistan and and see the kind of yeah the US you know isn't if, good at winning if wars, the United States what's that the U.S. isn't good at winning wars I guess no. no right if they I you know if they were like as excellent as we believe them to be or they are said to be then you know those things wouldn't have been drawn out for seventeen years or whatever right mm-hmm. yeah. Um, not to defend, you know, Islamo-fascists, but like <laughs> they are not the U.S. military. Yeah. Um, and do you? Uh, and I also just want to uh, put it out there that we are three academics talking about all of this theoretically. No, no aspirations <laughs> right. here. We're just we're just having a theoretical academic hypothetical. Yeah, hypothetical, um, not something that any of us would ever be involved in, of course. Um, But uh, so then I'm then I'm also wondering, like, how how, does how I mean, maybe maybe you two aren't necessarily the the people to ask this question, because I don't know how much uh, you know about this. But in the event of of such a revolution, um, how would the, would would the would the more important factors then be sort of like 
um, not necessarily like full on like armed warfare, but like seeing like who you can actually get on your side and commit. Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing is that mm -hmm. like the U.S. Army has everything, but the U.S. Army is also made up of Americans mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and bureaucrats. Remember, so in in situations like rev armed revolution, very rarely, and it's usually at the very end, do states move in to actually do anything. In fact, what a state usually does is they uh, they bolster, arm, and uh, kind of push forward their paramilitary units far before they do anything themselves. And we see that here in the United States as well, right? Like the army doesn't have to commit itself in order to fight against uh, their ideological enemies. Instead, they kind of rouse up and, and muster, uh, you know, these the right wing militias. And in and when you look at right wing militias and uh, you know left wing self defense groups, they're armed exactly the same. Uh, there isn't an advantage other than the fact that the right wing uh, controls a lot of the gun discourse and and uh, and creates fear on a lot of the left of guns, uh, which puts them at an advantage. And that's one of the reasons why people like myself and Dick uh, try and um, remove that fear because self-defense groups uh, will be the ones that have to uh, protect our communities uh, because the state certainly is not. The police are not interested in protecting us. Um, and so that's what ends up usually happening, happening first uh, uh, around the world uh, with, with armed kind of uprisings. Hmm. Can I just add to, um, I, I mean, absolutely agree with Taylor. And I agree with you that, you know, I might not be the person to ask about that. But one of the, you know, people that I listen to a lot on this subject and that I cannot praise enough or plug enough is Robert Evans' work. Um, mm -hmm. Robert Evans is, he was a sort of war correspondent for Cracked, which is a strange thing and then uh such a weird he, thing to exist yeah and he was mostly uh he he writes for bellingcat um i think he's probably he people always accuse of being a cia plant no actually i've never heard that but okay. I, I know what you mean um he uh he i think he's probably mm -hmm. most famous yeah. for his podcast behind the bastards um yes and yeah, a few years ago he did a, for a long time yeah, a few years ago, he did a short series um, called uh, uh, It Could Happen Here. Yes. Where he sort of, you know, based on his experience uh, in Syria and uh, covering different kinds of conflicts around the world and just his like journalistic research, puts together a sort of um, uh, asks, like, what would a civil war look like in the United States? Mm -hmm. um, because it has happened in these other places and don't get comfortable. Don't think for a minute that it wouldn't happen here. Here's what it would look like. And he talks a lot about these like armed groups that like this, you're absolutely right, Taylor, like the state would more or less retract itself from the conflict, uh, while funding and supporting these paramilitary groups and, and Robert Evans predicts, and a lot of his predictions have already come true over the last couple of years that the big threat is going to be or is uh, like dominionist Christian uh, enclaves who, you know, are able to sort of 
amass a ton of support and infrastructure and control mm-hmm. a lot of that infrastructure because they control a lot of the gun discourse and stuff like that yeah. versus the these tiny Christian? little like what's that what's a dominionist christian uh they're like christo fascists they're okay. you know they're uh it's sort of um i don't know if i can give a very good definition i would think of like extremely conservative sort of like doomsday prepper right fundamentalist uh, like yeah, yeah 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 right okay it's usually tied to most right-wing militias if you look mm-hmm. at right a lot of the like big right-wing militias three percenters you know uh, all of these you know even proud boys uh if you look at them uh and like dissect their beliefs and look at like some of the like christo-fascist uh groups uh they actually share membership and believe in the same kind of ideas about basically everything. Uh, and so even though they don't call themselves, you know, a overtly Christian or Christo fascist group, uh, they, they very much do, uh, tread in the same spaces. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, there's a lot going on here. Um, uh, can I, can I move on to the, another, another argument? All right. Cause yeah, there were, there were some pretty good ones. We'll try to get to all of them without making this three hours long, because I could totally do this for three hours. Um, although if anybody who's listening to this uh, wants wants a part two, just just let us know in the comments of wherever I tweet out the episode. Yeah, that's um, a, obviously we're going to have, we're have to do surface level kind of uh, prongs in here, but I think right. both mm-hmm. Dick and myself are willing to do part two if people want to hear more for some yeah. Um, so, and so this was an interesting one because I had, uh, somebody quote tweeted my original, like, what are the arguments from the left for gun control? And was like, nobody who, nobody who has anything like to say about this ever thinks about, um, like people of color, black people and their, their role in this. And I was like, that's not actually true because, um, like that's, that's the main thing that, that stays my hand is like knowledge of the black Panthers and like black radicals in the U S. Um, and also just of like the way that, uh, every law that exists uh is weaponized against black populations and so of course this is going to uh mm-hmm. be as well but um we had but i was thinking so there was somebody else who mentioned um that it's easy to tell so like, and, and this is more on like a practical level of like leftists actually like arming themselves i'm going to see themselves because it feels safer uh yeah okay. um <laughs> and implicating myself i have to i have to choose a lot of like we and they strategically when i do this kind of work um it's easy to tell people to arm themselves but it's more complicated to offer support for people of color up on charges uh so this is like you know that a, the, the currently incredibly racist white supremacist system doesn't support like self-defense as mm-hmm. as an excuse or as a defense when the defender is black yep so fair yep. point yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. We, we can talk about the, the case that often comes up in this conversation. And, um, and I forgive me, I haven't like read up on it recently, so I don't remember all the details. But there was a case, I believe, in Florida, which is a stand your ground state um, where uh, a black woman uh, brandished a handgun at her, not at, but like in the presence of her um, abusive partner uh, and fired a shot into the air. And then she was in her own home, by the way, uh, 
because it's a stand your ground state that should have been, you know, uh, reasonable, I think. And, uh, I think she ended up getting 20 years or something on that. And this was not long after, maybe only a few years after, um, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida. Right. So yeah, absolutely. My response to that, the way I think about that is, you know, that's not wrong. I don't know that that's an argument against uh, or an argument for gun control, because, again, I want to think about the way we talk about drugs and drug legalization and, you know, how that is very much racialized. Right. When we legalize or decriminalize, usually, you know, legalize drugs. And meanwhile, we have, you know, tons and tons of people of color who are still in prison for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses, Mm -hmm. right? So I think there's a parallel argument to be made there. Yeah. And it's interesting because, go ahead. Go go ahead, Hillary. No, no, because, yeah, no, you go. (laughs) Uh, Well, so this also goes back to one of the, the main arguments, I think, on what on thinking about guns as an individualist and as a collective, right? Uh, and mm. this is a big part of it. Um, mm. I don't think either Dick or myself advocates uh, an individualist perspective of guns. That is, people should be arming themselves uh, for themselves, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or should just arm themselves, and then that's it. That yes. is not. Yeah, that's really that, important to. And it's, it's easy to fall into those, those traps because we are surrounded, uh, but you know, we live under uh, not only capitalism, but capitalist realism. Like it's really hard to, to extract ourselves from the individualist mindset that, that we, that like everything in our society pushes us towards like embodying as our, as our, as our worldview, as our lens. So um, yeah, it is. Thanks for that reminder. (laughs) And, and so, and, and those cases of, of firearms being used to defend oneself as a person of color uh, when you're in a group as a collective, well, then you have more support in order to rally against those kinds of cases versus if you are just an individual, as I think Mm -hmm. it was the case in in this case, Mm -hmm. uh, the state has a much easier time just throwing the book at you versus with the Black Panthers, especially... Uh, people who were accused, you know, uh, uh, thrown in jail, including, you know, their leaders uh, were able to be freed because they had the force of a collective behind them to to uh, care for, to constantly pressure and eventually to get released the people who were unjustly pr- imprisoned because of this. Of course, there's always it, it's never one or the other either. Right. I mean, having a gun personally, which I'm a, I am a owner of a firearm. I would be a hypocrite if I came on here saying that, uh, you know, that I love gun, you know, that I think all leftists should have guns. And then I didn't have guns. I'm an owner of multiple firearms. And I've personally, as an individual feel safer because I've gotten death threats from fascists. I live in Arizona, uh, where we have a very high concentration of fascist groups who know my name and know where I live. Uh, and the, having a firearm helps my own peace of mind in knowing that I can uh, defend myself if I need to, or defend my family if I need to. Uh, Mm -hmm. And 
I believe firmly that because I own a firearm, I haven't been hassled by fascists uh, because, yeah. So, okay. So I I do, I think it's important to acknowledge also like the different contexts that we are, we're, we're, we're all working from too, because yeah, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian. Um, There are lots of guns in Canada, but my personal experience um, and like, uh, you know, this is, this is just, how it is for me uh, as a white woman growing up in Southern Ontario, but in, in a, in a big city, well, big for Canada, uh, an hour South of Toronto. Um, I, I don't own a gun. I've never touched a gun. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen anybody handle a gun that wasn't like a law enforcement officer. I don't know anybody who owns a gun. I have never, heard gunshots in any neighborhood that I've lived in. I don't know anybody who has been impacted by gun violence. Like it's just guns just don't like functionally don't exist in my experience. And I'm not saying that's the experience of every Canadian, but it's like fairly common. Um, and it's just, and I remember, um, you know, going like every time I go to the U S I'm like shocked and I feel very like, I, I don't even want to call it like sheltered or naive or anything because it's, it's, it's just different. Mm. Um, and to, to say that is to kind of like imply that, the, that this is the real world and this is like what, how, how things are or should be. But um, there's just, there's guns everywhere. And I also just um, uh, acknowledging maybe yes, a little more of the sheltered and naive. I remember I, uh, my partner and I stayed with, with Dick in, in St. Louis and, um, for a conference once and I remember talking to, to Dick about like oh no like there's like people get mugged here like there's it's it's a real thing like it like there's there's violence there's guns like it's yeah like it's Ferguson's right next door and obviously like most of that violence like comes from the police towards the people but like it's just it's a thing that that is around so I do want to acknowledge that um that uh obviously the my sort of like experience with guns is like very theoretical um and you, and yours is very real but then i also want to ask so you you believe that uh owning a gun has kept you safe how does that how does that function like just people other people know that you have them and so i'm 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 not uh as evidenced by being on on this show right now i'm not uh uh quiet about the fact that i believe in armed uh, leftist responses to fascist violence uh, and uh, I'm not quiet about the fact that I personally uh, own, you know, that I'm a part of the Socialist Rifle Association and, and own a firearm. And I've worked with uh, other armed groups uh, in Arizona specifically because this, the, uh, again, because my my context of being here in this state, especially, uh, is is just overrun with kind of right wing militias. And so this, the response had to be from a lot of, uh, other organizations, uh, that there's a lot of people of color organizations too, I I should say, and marginalized people, right? The pink pistols, uh, are one, uh, group, uh, for queer folks to, to learn how to use firearms. Uh, and so these kinds of groups, uh, have the American Indian movement is another historical one, right? Of, of indigenous, uh, folks in the United States that, that were, that happened alongside the black Panthers, uh, that, were in response to the right wing armament. Uh, and when people know that you are armed, they take a different attitude towards you. And this includes the state police. If you go out as an armed collective, 
the police don't, they keep their distance a little bit more. They don't hassle people as much. Even if you're a contingent in a protest and you're staying away from most of it, but you're, you let them know we have a presence here. We're not going to march with you, but if you need help, we're here. Those protests, the police keep their distance. <laughs> they don't hassle people as much. Violence goes down. They don't tear gas us as often. You know, uh, really? they really it because they're just afraid of getting of shot, basically. Yeah. So I mean, I they the it it does work, and that's what the Black Panthers found out, right? Like they right. first started arming themselves by following and filming, you know, and and, and or following police and recording police. And when they'd stop somebody, they would just step out of their car with their guns and just watch. And Mm -hmm. that outcome has followed through time uh, to today in which if there are groups of people of color or leftists in in, an area, police keep their distance more. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And yeah, and I think that's important to sort of like bring it back to that that collective. And I mean, that that also sort of... um, yeah, that, that, that serves an important role in terms of just sort of like, like taking away that sort of like mythical power of the state to just be like, oh, like those are, they're just people who have guns. Like this isn't, you know, we could also be people who have guns. Like that's, that's all, that's all the cops are. Um, but um yeah, just like, I think the, 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 the point of, of the, um, the collective experience and powers is, is really important because once again, I'm, I'm drawn to the parallel of um, drug policy and the fact that, you know, when uh, in terms of um, some of the radical actions that, that we need people to take are like destigmatizing um, drug use by being out of the closet as, as a user of illicit drugs, like illegal drugs, we need people who are like structurally safe to do that. Um, so it's like, it's not like I would tell everybody should be out of the closet because obviously some people can't be. And if you're a person of color, if you are a parent, um, you should not do that, uh, necessarily unless you feel really safe doing it because it's very dangerous. But if you don't have kids and you're white and you are middle-class and you're like pretty comfortable, please be open about your illegal drug use because that helps to destigmatize. And, um, so, and also, you know, in terms of like the new, um, uh, movements that are happening towards uh, safe supply. So this is um, groups such as the Drug User Liberation Front in Vancouver, who are like doing, you know, very radical, like fully breaking the law action, just giving drugs to people openly, because that's the, what we need. We need a safe supply. So they're saying, fuck it, like, just come arrest us. We're just going to mm-hmm. give people the drugs that they need. And because they're doing that as a collective, and they're doing it very openly, and like in, like, you know, in the face of the state, they're being left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I would not suggest that any like one person, you know, just go and like give away drugs. Like that could be a politically powerful action, but you're going to get the hammer come down on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, and if you're going to be buying firearms too, I would say don't buy them new. You know, uh, one of the big arguments is like, oh, I don't want to like fund the arms manufacturers. Well, I mean, the government's already going to do that, most of that anyway. But if you feel more comfortable not giving money to arms manufacturers, there's plenty of like used firearms that you can, you know, go to for supplies. And then you're not directly uh, funding, you know, 
uh, uh, arms manufacturers. And there's even like leftist gun shops now mm-hmm. that are starting to yeah. sprout up. Um, I think Dick oh, knows, did, didn't, yeah. or Dick had sent me a few a while back. Yeah. I think. There's one in um, Springfield, Missouri, I want to say. Uh, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me. Um, I'll, I'll get it to you and you can add it to the show notes. It's something like rocket something, but their whole thing is, uh, you know, they make, um, uh, what are they called? I don't know anything about AR 15s. I'm more of an AK guy, but it's like the lower lowers. Is that what they're called? I don't know. It's a part in an an AR 15, uh, that they, they make and um they're very specifically like anti-fascist um Mm. and like anti uh they have like shirts that say like arm i don't know uh queer folks or something i don't remember it's been a while since i've seen it but yeah i mean it's really really kind of cool that those are cropping up now and i would love to see there aren't a lot i would like to see a lot more um yeah. Because you never know, like at best, you might find a company that's sort of like neutral, neutral, like. Well, it's so unquote. funny because this is this this just parallels other sort of like uh, arguments of like we live in a society like yeah, participating in capitalism, like you know, right. like I try to only buy used clothing, like I just, I don't buy any almost any new clothing. We finally had to like buy our toddlers some like new like socks like we buy our new underwear but like everything else is is uh is used um because i don't want to like participate in fast fashion and like you know um but at the same time uh it's 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 only making a small dent and you know well individual solutions can't can't change everything but um yeah i don't know yeah that's that's true in terms of like you know um where you buy your books and like, or like how you buy your clothes and stuff like that with, with these companies, they are mom and pop shops. I mean, they're very small businesses who do very mm-hmm. little business. And like, no, I mean, I just mean in terms of like, like Taylor suggesting that you buy used guns instead oh, yeah. of like, like new ones that are contributing to like the actual weapons manufacturing right, right, manufacturers right. profits. I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Cause I never would have even kind of considered yeah, that. Totally. Um, so, so uh, the next the next one I was gonna read out. Um, I feel like now that I'm seeing it, this is more of an argument. Uh, this is like actually kind of an argument against gun control, but but it's I, I think it's more of an argument against uh, owning a gun yourself. Mm. Um, being armed makes you a potential threat and therefore a target. The left, as currently constituted in North America, would be flattened by armed right wingers or agents of the state. Uh, so why draw that target on ourselves is this argument. I don't know if it's the strongest one, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've addressed some of that too, is that yeah. Yeah, you're not going to go out by yourself. Uh, and yeah. I know, I don't think any leftist is going to say, go out by yourself with a weapon. Uh, yeah. That's suicide. Uh, we, yeah. this is like a fascist country uh, uh, and you're not going to want to do this by yourself. Uh, this is a collective struggle. Uh, and mm-hmm. therefore you need to be armed collectively. Um, right. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's every every armed group also does mutual aid. I don't know any leftist 
uh, armed group that doesn't also supply food or do emergency runs during that. You know, the I think the Socialist Rifle Organization or Association was actually one of the first groups on the ground after a hurricane, like uh, a few years ago in the Gulf Coast. Mm. Uh, that and they came just in a convoy of pickup trucks with food and water, uh, and so it's not just uh, about being armed; it's about uh, moving the revolution forward, mm-hmm. and that requires mm-hmm. arms, but it also requires serving the people. Yeah, yeah. I'm also a member of the the Socialist Rifle Association, and there's no chapter here in in where I am in Florida. And there's, uh, uh, but there is um, another group. There's no chapter because I think there's this other group called Soup and Brass. And that's exactly what it is, is, you know, soup for my family and and, <laughs> and brass, you know, uh, shells or casings. And uh, that's exactly what it is, is it's firearm safety, firearm training and mutual aid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just, I just thought of a bunch of things I had to write down because I think I have, I think I've already, we were 40 minutes in, I think I've already kind of figured out now where I land on this. And I think this has been really productive. Um, so, uh, one, one more. So I think I've, I've basically two more, um, because I've one that, that a lot of people, brought up um that i think is is fair and then another one was like a little bit of a thread but i want to find the i, I want to give credit to the person who wrote this thread because i thought it was pretty uh pretty thoughtful um and i think yeah yeah anyways so uh the the one issue that people brought up and obviously this is one of those like individualist issues but that it also is kind of relevant is um the fact that a lot of people when you own guns at home you know, if under the ideal conditions of like safety and, and training and, and um, access to like the resources that allow you to have gun safes and things like that, then it's all fine. But like mm-hmm. a lot of kids die and a lot of uh, suicides mm-hmm. um, are completed because of having access to guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, once again, I, I, I can see the parallels with drugs as well. Like it's, you know, that's that's just an argument for more better education and better resources mm-hmm. um, around safety. Mm-hmm. But as it is, like how how would you how would you address that? I mean, that's exactly it. I you know a, a lot of my my research in in medical anthropology and in public health is largely around uh, um, support persons, and usually that's with you know, respect to like pregnancy and stuff, but we all, but I, I think of that in, in terms of many sort of health issues or public health issues, which is like, you need strong community, you need, you know, a lot of social support and, um, uh, strong communities make strong communities. And that's exactly, you know, I think you hit on the head, which is like more education and, um, you know, more support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, f- definitely training the strong communities portion is incredibly important as well, because one of the other big arguments, I think, is is, you know, uh, domestic abuse and the yes. escalation yeah. of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was your the second one, Hillary, or not. No, but that's that's okay. part of this one. Yeah, I just yeah, I should mention so, that as well. Yeah. So having like having strong, tight knit communities to be able to um 
you know, rely on your neighbors and your comrades around you uh, in order to then be able to call upon them if there is an abuse situation, because abuse is not something that is uh, left or right, you know, political. Mm -hmm. This is something that is human, human uh, wide, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. uh, it's also not something that is only uh, uh, committed by people with firearms, right? Firearms are an escalator uh, Mm -hmm. uh, or can be an escalator, uh, but with training and uh, precautions and strong communities, especially uh, it, it, it detour, it deters it a lot, right? You're not an abuser is much less likely Mm -hmm. to abuse somebody if they know there is an entire neighborhood who's going to, you know, come down on them if they, if they do anything. Right. Um, So that's, that's a huge component of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I have uh a great deal to say about uh like domestic violence and in, in this issue and um and I don't know if we want to get off on this tangent on you know public health stuff, but uh I'm totally willing Just to Just go for it. Just go There's, for it. <laughs> okay, so uh, where should I even start on this? Uh, okay, I'm gonna keep so, it concise, but go for it. And it I say concise. this only because we are all anthropologists here, and yeah. we're not. None of us are good at being concise, so it's nice to be challenged once in a while. Okay, so in the '90s, there's this thing called the Dickey Amendment, right? And the the Dickey Amendment was originally uh, sort of attached to a funding bill that was going through Congress. And it said that the funding in that bill could not go, whatever funding that the CDC was taking could not be used to promote gun control, right? The NRA like lobbied the shit out of this. Mm -hmm. So it passes. Now, Table that for a second and also recognize that there are all these other federal laws that keep us, that keep certain people from owning firearms, right? So one of those people is uh, domestic abusers. Anyone who has been found sort of at risk of harming themselves or others by like a court or a commission or something like that, they're not allowed to own guns legally. Which is already a problem because, I mean, that... Sure. That rel- relying on the court system for anything. Right. Especially right. like violence against women. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of uh, regulations about who can't own guns. And it also includes people who have uh, addictions to control. Yeah. Substances. Well, that's another. There's like, I'm sure there's ableism in there. Right. Yeah. It also includes uh, anyone who has been convicted of a crime who uh, that is punishable by more than a year in federal prison with the exemption of white collar criminals, of course. Um, Right. So there's like all these laws on the books about who can't own guns, but because of the Dickey amendment, because the CDC didn't do research on gun violence since 1996, we don't actually know if those work. We Hmm. just assume they do because they, they make a sort of like liberal sense, right. Hmm. That they should work. So it turns out, we have realized in the last couple of years that uh, the, that Dickey amendment 
doesn't actually say that the CDC can't do gun violence research. It says that they can't use money to promote gun control. And so the CDC just never did any gun violence research over the last, you know, 20 years or whatever, 25 years now. By cho- uh, just by choice? By or? choice. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So look, the CDC has been fucking up for right? a long time. Well, yeah. Kind of yeah. like how, you know, they just right. like lowered the COVID quarantine rules just because right. like. They are a political organization, right? Yeah. They are. However, there is decent news here which is that other organizations have taken up the the role of counting and doing this sort of research and one of those organizations is called the violence project or tvp so tvp has counted all of the uh mass shootings since like 1966 i'm i'm not clear on why 1966 uh but it is and they gather tons of detailed information about every single shooting based on like police reports, based on uh, reporting, like journalistic reporting at the time. Um, And they amass all this data about like what kind of guns were used and how many shots were fired and how many people were killed and injured and what everyone's names were and like what the shooter's background was, where they come from, all that stuff. So they count, now something like 140 mass shootings since 1966 which might seem a little low or maybe a little high i'm not sure but what is that do you think that's high or low hillary how many 140 since 1966 that's absurdly low okay a lot of that has to do like that many every like six months (laughs) right it, right, it, it, it depends on the on what they're quantifying. Like it, it depends, right. Yeah, it depends it depends your definition of mass shooting. Right. So lot, but. you may remember there was a last April there was this uh, article that came out that sort of like shocked a bunch of people about. It was from CNN and it was there. It said something like there have been forty five mass shootings in the month of April this year, and the reason for that is because CNN uh, defines a mass shooting as like. I think it's four people injured, like in a given event, whereas the violence project would say four people killed. And so that's why the numbers are way off. Anyway, as it relates to this issue of like domestic violence and masculinity and stuff, I'm working on a thing that on a study now in public health, uh, which is probably going to get me, I don't know, maybe blacklisted in a few groups because... Public health people hate guns. Um, But in public health, there's this idea called uh, necessary cause and sufficient cause. And so I'm not going to get too technical here, but the idea is like, if you, if we're talking about coronavirus, a necessary cause of Corona of, of COVID-19 is the coronavirus known as SARS-CoV-2, right? It's also called the sufficient cause because the necessary co- it is necessary and it is sufficient for you to get it. Now, that's not true of everything. If we're talking about malaria, you need a mosquito and you need the organism that it's carrying together. You can't have malaria without both of them. So they're both necessary individually, but together they're sufficient. So if you ask public health people about guns and mass shootings, 
they'll tell you that the sufficient and necessary cause is a firearm. And so the logic goes, if you remove guns, you won't have mass shootings, right? Or mass violence. And of course, my argument, and I think all of our arguments as anthropologists who know that nothing is that simple, is that if we look at the violence project data from all going all the way back to 1966, 99.5% of all of the shooters have been white men, mm. right? Yeah. White men are a necessary cause of mass shootings. So what you're saying is we need to abolish white men? We Yes, exactly. Yes. That's really what it always right. comes down to, isn't it? Right. <laughs> no, what I'm saying kidding. is... Just kidding. You, There's what, a lot what, of problems with white men, but it's because white, white men are men, like... Well, we could say white At the top of the hierarchy of workers, but like that they're still workers. So, well, yeah, we're I, not going to watch Whiteness and masculinity. Yes, yes. The that's the... Yes, right. absolutely. That's what... I mean, and, you know, I, in my work dealing with dealing with sort of like being this in-between between like academia and, and the public and, and all of these kind of... Um, conversations, I, I always do really try to uh, center, uh, yeah, like structures and not uh, mm-hmm. I- identities and people in terms of like looking at problems because yeah, it's um, it's not that white men are, are just born with like a desire to like do yeah. violence uh, right. as much as like a lot of like white fascists like right. truly believe that like people right. who, who really believe in like just human nature is you know and, and and masculinity is this and you know women are that um there's a lot of people who believe that but it's it's not true it's just that you know white supremacy exists and patriarchy yeah. exists and it shapes people yeah right exactly and so i think that that sort of brings me down to like you know, the if we're going to tell you, if we're if Taylor and I are going to sit here and tell you, like, guns are actually cool, fine, like, they're good and whatever, and you should have several of them uh, and arm your children, too, then we also have to be able to give you, like, the alternative, which is, you know, if if guns are cool and stuff, so then how do we stop all the bad things that happen with guns? And that's sort of where I'm coming down on this is like, well, if white men are a significant problem here, then how do we fix that problem? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it comes back to social support and education. It comes back to like, well, what is the problem with white men? There's a ton of research on that. And we know that a lot of it comes down to things like uh, economic anxiety, racial anxiety, uh, heteropatriarchal entitlements and like these colonial mindsets to like be able to claim whatever you want. And then when you find out you don't get what you want, you know, then you're sort of driven into, I don't know, violent outburst or whatever. Um, I mean, there's a reason that like the mass shootings that we see in the United States aren't carried out by usually collectives. Mm-hmm. Right. They're carried out by individuals who are acting alone. You know, we call them lone wolves and we sort of like uh, do a big jerk off motion about it because we know <laughs> that they're like supported ideologically by other people. But they're not mm-hmm. generally members of, you know, organized sort of collectives or whatever either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when when a person lives uh, under uh, oppression and and, um, you know, 
uh, structural violence and unfairness. And I'm not saying that that uh, a lot of the white men who commit uh, violence live under like any anywhere close to the same kind of like op- oppression or 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 difficult circumstances that like everybody mm-hmm. else does, but they're clearly not happy the they know that like they're they haven't been given what was what was promised to them these mm-hmm. the, the lies that they were sold by capitalism in older in order to uphold um right. patriarchy and white supremacy like because that's 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 the deal it's the deal with the devil like you you are told that you will get you know these things and they will fulfill you all we require in exchange is that you help us oppress you know, your fellow workers, mm-hmm. um, and your, your fellow people under capitalism, they're sold this. And in, su- in certain uh, places and times, um, that has come to fruition, and they've been happy with that. But particularly right now, um, we're seeing this just like collapse of all of these lies and all of these structures, because because it's built, because they're built on lies. And mm-hmm. so of course, they're not happy, because, you know, as anthropologists, we, we, uh, we are, the the most closely informed uh, group of people towards like uh, in, in within academia uh, towards trying to understand human nature and what we actually need as as human beings as our species we need um, you know we need the collective we need not even just society but like like community we need mm-hmm. uh, actual people and um you know we we, we have a, a finite need in terms of our resources like food shelter water like we just yeah we're, we're animals um but because community and the, the collective is the main thing that capitalism destroys and it's the main thing that we need to feel fulfilled these white men don't have that and so they are left incredibly unhappy they're they're overworked they like women don't want to date them like they they just nobody wants to be friends with them uh in terms of like a lot of the people who you know are are the problem and so when you when you feel that angry and lied to but you are also being sold different lies that are explaining your feelings mm-hmm. uh by like right-wing media and facebook exactly. and all of this and like exactly. white supremacist groups and everything yeah. so then you you believe that and then you're so their anger is like justified in terms of like the actual effective feeling of anger that they feel um about living in a shitty society where like there's pandemics and just like bullshit all over the place yeah but it's so poorly directed and so wrong and like you said i think that's a really interesting um point to make about the uh you know as leftists when we understand that like that that we need the collective we can rely on the collective in terms and to to make ourselves like not want to jump off a cliff like i'm just like i i have ways of dealing with my anger that involve like getting social support but if you don't have that and you have been told that social support makes you weak and needing other people makes you weak, then right. the anger has nowhere to go and right. you end yeah. up yeah. Right. taking that's it on your family, your partner, your community. Yeah, right. That's sort of on, that's on like the front end of it is this like lack of social support and community and like not willing to depend on other people. And then I love what you said about like being sold the bill of, of lies about like who is to blame for this by the people who are to blame, right? Like yeah. I personally believe that Tucker Carlson is probably single-handedly more responsible than anyone else for for the mass shootings of the last 20 years. Yeah. Tucker Carlson and Glenn Beck and and you know all those ghouls. 
And once again, like it's, I, I agree with that, but it's, it's once again, important to not be like, oh, if we just get rid of Tucker Carlson, that'll solve the problem. Like, no, no, no it's like, no, 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 it's no, like no, playing no, whack-a-mole right. I mean, when you're talking right. about there, capitalists. There's, like it's, yeah, 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 yeah. There's probably yeah. a lot of, a lot of people just screaming right now at the screen that this is exactly what Marx wrote about when he did described alienation, right? Like this right. is not a new yeah, problem. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of yeah. too. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't a new right. problem. This has been yeah. no, uh, none of these are new insights. This is just, yeah. Like Marx and bell hooks right. and like, yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah. And in the paper that I'm writing about this, I trace this back that far too and talk about, you know, um, you know, this has been a problem in, at least in the United States, sort of focusing on the United States since, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, old immigration, like the wave of immigration in the mid 19th century, and then the wave of immigration again in the 1890s. And and, you know, talking about sort of uh, displacement of indigenous populations and all of that has been enacted through this like wild blame game in like pushing, put, pitting workers against each other, the working class against each other. Yeah, if folks find this really interesting, I would urge them to check out the book by old Joel Olson called The Abolition of White Democracy. Uh, which is mm-hmm. a very good uh, political science history book that kind of really goes into this and gives good examples on it. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, if there's any, I'll put, I'll try to put in the show notes some other reading recommendations because I'm sure we we all have lots of them. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I guess we'll we'll try to try to wind up. What what what's the word? Wrap, yeah, wrap, wrap up. up. Thank you. <laughs> wind uh, down. <laughs> Yeah. See, this is a collective endeavor. Do we, we don't. I don't have to rely on my own brain, my own shitty, like, very have, full of holes brain for everything. Do we have a minute to talk about my argument for yes. gun control? Yeah. So I want to. So there's one more I want to do briefly. Oh, sure. um, there was that thread. I just want to give a shout out to uh, to the person who wrote this thread. I'm not actually going to read it. I've decided because I think we've. It's. With Drew Downs, he wrote a thing underneath the the original tweet, and and it was good. He's he's talking about, um, but I think what it connects to is is a, is another person's that I'm going to read, uh, basically about that pro gun arguments, it in his opinion uh, undermine the collective mutual aid arguments because they're reinforcing the conservative individualistic frame. But I think we've kind of talked about that that like we're not saying like you know. Mm-hmm individuals should end going it needs to be a collective endeavor mm-hmm. but the last one i want to say uh bring it back to the sort of like effective um uh arguments so uh comrade uh mutual of mine on twitter matthew uh chikaonda points out something that i think i i it sounds maybe a little bit sort of like idealistic but i think i think it's it's important to to reckon with So he says that uh, we want to create and live a world in which we empower ourselves and others by speaking truth and spreading love. I don't think that's compatible with a world in which we empower ourselves through the threat or use of force. Uh, Love and force are oil and water. The purpose of guns is to dominate and coerce. We want to foster a world free of domination and coercion. Hmm. So, I mean, I have have my thoughts on that. Um, But, like, I don't know. How do we, you know, when we in terms of building the world we want to see, we want to do it uh, in a a lot of the time, we want to do it in a way that is compatible with the values Mm -hmm. of communism, like of that, of that we want to, we want to, we don't want to have like the the end justify the means we want to constantly be uh, living the world that we want to see. However, is that a compatible 
um, approach in a world that is already so full of violence mm -hmm. and domination. Mm -hmm. Love has to be defended. It can't just, mm -hmm. it, it won't, you know, that there are people who don't want you to live in peace. <laughs> and are they going to listen to, uh, you know, rational debate as, as the right so much likes this, to talk about civil discourse that liberals go on and on about? No, of course not. That's not how, how politics operates. Politics mm -hmm. operates as a, 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 it needs to be, some some facets need to be dominated. Uh, and those facets are things like fascism and things that want to literally murder and do not recognize the humanity of certain comrades. And no, you can't have love if those people are in the same community as you are. Uh, you need to defend love by expelling those those people and those ideas from your community and those aren't, mm -hmm. and that isn't done, uh, through some kind of like uh, hippie drum circle. That's not how fascists get expelled. It doesn't, it just doesn't Listen, operate that way. There is a role for hippie drum circles. Absolutely. I will defend hippie drum circles, <laughs> but yeah, they're not going to stop the cops, but like they're important to make us. They are incredible. Uh, feel but not, it, it will not stop better on our free time so that we can arm ourselves on our, on our fighting it, time. It, my point is that it won't stop the jackboot. It yeah. will not. Uh, and, um, and so there's a balance here. We're, we're not mm -hmm. looking at guns. I think what's happening here is we're looking at guns through the gaze of the state and through the gaze of right-wing ideology and seeing the mm -hmm. gun as a right-wing person. Well, you need to remove that misconception and do some work on yourself to try and understand that these are also defensive tools. Uh, and so like the Kurdish struggle and Kurdistan uh, is a society, communal society that they are building with love and equality and equity uh, in place. So much so that women are the ones who are the the ones that are armed in the community. Uh, it is a strictly feminist revolution. And so they're the ones that are able to uh, ensure that there is collective love and collective peace in the mm -hmm. communities. And I would also point out that, so this is, this is an opinion I have. This is like the opposite. I have this opinion and I know it's correct. I just don't have the data to support it yet other than my own experience, but I'm sure that somebody has written about this, uh, is the fact that uh, it's a particularly liberal thing to um, convince, to whitewash history and, and uh, to convince us that like, yeah, all you need to, like, it's just, you know, nonviolence and love and like peaceful protest and that kind of thing. And that historically speaking, like, even if we want to get away from like talking about like, oh, well, what's the right approach? If we're, if we look at what's the effective approach, like actual pragmatically, like what has worked throughout history, you know, um, it, we it's it's it benefits liberalism to convince us all that like peaceful protests like waving signs like in a designated area in the street is the way to go because mm. that doesn't actually change the status quo and the actual reality is that like fighting is what has changed things well i have your 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 uh data for that uh peter gelderloos wrote a book called how Nonviolence protects the state uh, Ooh, and yes. goes directly go. into that. So. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
Uh, and once again, it's not like I just like thought up this opinion on my own. I've seen other people give it and I'm like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just like, this is what happens when most of your information uh, about like broader things instead of like specifically drug policy uh, comes from Twitter. I can't cite things <laughs> because mm. it's just, it's just the collective that are giving my opinions. And I mean, um, you know, there's that famous quote from Kwame Ture about this too, about. I, yes. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I know what it'd be. Yeah, it, it applies to even just, you know, like MLK and um, just many major historical figures that have been at the forefront of movement rights. I think I even read a thing about like Rosa Parks that like she's she's been framed as like, oh, she just like sat down on the bus. And that's all she did. But she was actually like a super radical, like, yeah, you know, right. like a rouser who did much more than just that. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So, yeah, do you want to uh, say say your last uh, closing arguments? Yeah, gonna... I, so related to this, um, I was thinking, uh, related to this question of, like, sort of liberalism and liberal how liberal politics sort of intersects with gun control stuff, I was thinking about how, um, you know, you find these... Uh, you will often hear leftists say things like um, arm the poor or arm trans folks, arm queer folks, arm the unhoused, right? And if we sort of unpack that a little bit and like, why do we say that? Well, obviously, I think, obviously, um, and you might have other thoughts on this, but the way I think about that is that the, the desire to arm vulnerable populations is to give them a leg up, right? Give them firepower that can match the oppressive structural power that they don't, you know, wield or benefit from or whatever, right? And so there is a leftist argument or counter argument to that, uh, which I'm I'm sympathetic to, but I, I don't buy 100%, which is uh, that feels like a Band-Aid, right? Like, what we should be doing is giving poor people money and like giving unhoused folks houses and whatever. And then they wouldn't mm -hmm. be vulnerable anymore. Right. Like yeah. they could, obviously there are issues with that too. Like I, I don't like that. Or I don't love that argument, but um, I think there is something to be said for, uh, and we've addressed it a little bit, but something to be said for a, a sort of, uh, neoliberal view of gun ownership, uh, which is what we've talked about, you know, individuals versus collectives and uh, things like that. So I don't know. You have thoughts, Taylor? No, everyone should just go get trained, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, even yeah. if you don't want a firearm and do not like them, you, you don't have to get a firearm. Uh, you don't have to use them. There's plenty of roles in, in our revolutionary movements for people who are unarmed. Uh, we need medics. If you don't like guns, learn how to be a medic, you know, take medical training. There are uses for a lot of different people with a lot of different skill sets. Yep. Uh, but I think especially for people who have never uh, held or used a firearm before, like, like you, Hillary, like finding a, a leftist group that they all, all the time do like outings to shooting ranges and things. Oh, Can, I just remembered one friend who is, who is a communist and has a gun in Canada. 
Yeah, I just haven't yeah, talked to I mean, him in a few just, years. But yeah. If if you go and and exp- just even if you don't want to touch it, but if you go and have them explain what it, what it's like and how it how it's used and how it's fired having some kind of rudimentary I mean, it's not knowledge like a poisonous snake i'd be willing to touch one i guess like I, well i mean some people but are, i think it's, it's completely you know no but uh, it's interesting because i think i mostly do fall into that camp where like i'm just the whole thing i like i just find the idea of an object that can hurt somebody else so easily mm-hmm. so abhorrent that it does kind of get imbued with a bit of uh, like supernatural kind of power in my mind in terms of like, I just, I don't want to taint myself with that. But I also don't, I don't, that's not a feeling that I like want to preserve within myself. I would rather demystify it. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Because having, well, having the training, even if you don't have it, then at least you know how to operate at least have a basic yeah. idea of how to operate it. So if there ever comes a time when you need it, it's not some kind of mystical, as you say, like mystical, unknown, uh, strange, scary thing. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's then becomes a tool that you have some kind of familiarity with the same as driving mm-hmm. a car, which is also quite dangerous. Yes. I would, I would add at the very least people should, more people should learn how to talk about guns Mm-hmm. firearms competently because you know no matter where you fall on whatever side or if there is even as a side or you know whatever of of any kind of discussion or debate like it's really i think it's important to at least like if you're going to have an opinion on it know sort of different things sort of be able to dispel certain myths right so mm-hmm. everything from like learning the difference between a magazine and a clip now i understand that that is you know a ridiculous sort of pedantic thing but like if you're talking to people conservatives or libertarians or whatever about guns and they hear you say clip when you mean magazine like they just they don't want to talk to you anymore they're going to shut you down but there's other things too like the gun show loophole is a myth there's no gun show loophole it's not a loophole it's the law right Mm -hmm. if you want to talk about the gun show loophole then you know learn about it because otherwise you're going to end up shutting down conversation about it, you know, with the people you're talking to. So hmm. yeah, that's, learn, uh, that's a good point. Learn those things, dispel yeah. those things. And I think that, and that's, I, I, that's good too, because I think that's um, practically speaking uh, easier for a lot of people than to mm-hmm. gain. Cause that, oh, cause that was another, this was the only one that I personally wrote down was like, everybody's pretty busy. <laughs> everybody's mm. pretty stressed. We only have so mm. much like time and energy to go around. Like how much energy should we be devoting to this issue? And right. I do, I also want to, um, you know, increasingly as I'm making uh, this sort of like public facing content, the, the podcast, YouTube stuff. Um, I, I want to, there's a lot of fear that's going around and all of it is justified. Most of it is justified. We're, everything's a shit show, but I think it's really important, um, you know, like you said, to, to, uh, to learn how to talk about these things. But also if we're, if we're thinking about like how to prepare ourselves for, it's not that by talking about this stuff and, or, or by like getting, um, you know, more comfortable with guns and, and everything, forming these collectives. It's not that we're like preparing for an armed revolution. Like that's not a thing that's like being 
organized currently on the left, as far as I know. I'm not being invited to those meetings if they are. But uh, it's it's just that like we we do need to get comfortable with the fact that things are changing and they are going to keep changing and everything is in flux. But that doesn't have to be um, scary. I think I think it's really terrifying to a lot of people to think like, oh my god, I did not ever want to have to think about guns. Like this is that is really it's an unsettling feeling to think that I might ever be in a circumstance where guns are like around me, like or that that they're involved in my life in any way. Um, and that's and that's scary to think about. It's scary to think about things like um, food shortages and supply chain disru- disruptions and not having medical supplies and future pandemics and water shortages. Yep. And, you know, like all of this and like like sea level rise, like this, this stuff is all really scary. But most of it's probably going to happen. And that doesn't, but I think the, the really important thing, and it's something that I've been working on for like several years now, because it's not easy, is um, coming to terms with that in a way that's not fatalist and not saying like, well, just let the ocean fucking take me, <laughs> but just being like, okay, if this is a new reality that we have to contend with, what is going to make us feel better about these things? Ignoring them is not going to make us feel better. It's also not going to solve anything, but planning and educating ourselves and just adjusting and it doesn't have to be adjusting overnight but over time um is the only way forward because like yes things are changing but it doesn't mean we're gonna always be as miserable as we have been during this pandemic we will find ways to adjust human beings have lived in like really awful circumstances throughout history it's not um great that that's the case and you know there's a lot of points to be made for the fact that like comfortable, like financially stable white people like ourselves are like, Oh no, like we're going to have to experience hardship when like people around the world already are. Um, but like we can, if the, so the point of all this is that the process of preparing to meet these challenges is part of the solution, not just in terms of like, uh, you know, dual power and like creating new, new systems outside of capitalism, which is like the the solution. Um, But it also, it, it helps to solve like the mental health stuff because you don't feel so powerless. You don't feel so impotent and, and afraid. And you don't feel like everything is just happening to you. You feel like you have some agency over the situation. You're building networks, you're, you're building your community. And it's also like on a day-to-day individual basis. Like it's, it's fun. It brings you joy. Like, like to actually like this, like talking to you guys is much more fun than doom, doom scrolling on Twitter, like (laughs) actually interacting with your comrades and, and solving problems and doing stuff is like good for you. Um, it's good for you as an individual and it's good for us as, as a collective. So, um, yeah, so that's why I'm, 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 I'm starting to, to look at these things and like facing my fear of them head on because we all, we all kind of need to, and it's, uh, the more you do it, the better it feels. It's like, uh, you know, when I was preparing to, uh, give birth, I never actually, I had two C-sections, but when I was preparing to go into labor and everything, I was so terrified because of all of the you know, the cultural tropes around childbirth, like made it really scary. And so I was like, well, I'm an academic. How do I deal with anxiety? I inform myself (laughs) and informing myself about the actual reality of, of labor and childbirth. And also like talking to other people about it and like preparing for it made it so that I was like, I, 
I'm not like looking forward to this, but I'm not afraid of it anymore. I feel like I can, I can handle it because I, I've done my due diligence. Yeah. So yeah, we just need to uh, prepare for climate change as if it's a <laughs> collective labor and hopefully the metaphor will hold out. And at the end uh, we'll get rid of capitalism and then it'll all be fine. So we will still have guns though. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> We'll see, comrade. We'll see. <laughs> well, I suppose if my whole goal is to tell people that, uh, no, we're not going to get rid of uh, drugs in a perfect society because drugs are part of human society that uh, yeah. weapons kind of always have been too. Right. So, but hopefully we can go back to using uh, weapons as like tools to uh, build and, and help ourselves rather than. And yeah, and defend ourselves rather than in fighting. <laughs> and and just shoot paper. That's <laughs> shooting paper is fun too. You know, yeah. we can just have yeah. fun with guns. Guns shoot are toys, and they rule. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Done. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for for joining me here. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. If you have any uh, anything to add, I'm sure there's lots that we missed and. Um, I, you know, just the, the fact that we're three white people talking about this isn't great. I hope that we addressed, uh, some, some of the relevant stuff, but obviously as three white people, we're always going to miss things. And just as three, like human beings who only have uh, an hour and a bit to talk about this, we're going to miss stuff. So please, uh, in the, in the comments, when I post this on Twitter, add anything and, um, yeah, we can have a part two if anyone's interested in that. And uh, yeah, I love having these sort of ongoing conversations and, you know, we're all learning together. And so yeah. I, I certainly appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you both. Solidarity comrades. Yeah. Oh, and do you have any, I mean, you're, you're academic. So it's kind of like, do you have anything to plug? I mean, footnotes is our, our collective blog. I have a book that's just uh, probably about oh, to be it. released. It's a translation I did of Alexander Bogdanov's Art in the Working Class, the first time it's been oh. translated into English. You can find Very it at cool. peacelandbread.com slash books. Uh, it should be cool. out. And it's a low-cost book, but we also provide free PDFs, so you can get it for free um, at peacelandbread.com slash books. So check it out. Excellent. Dick, do you have any books yet? Uh, I, I have no, I'm, I'm writing a lot of stuff right now and I'm yeah. currently working on a book about anarchist public health. Cool. Um, but otherwise I have no pluggables. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, DT Powis, P-O-W-I-S. Excellent. Okay. And Taylor, we're going to put both of your Twitter handles in the, in the description. Yeah. Both, both worth following. All right. Thanks so much guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Big thanks to Dick and Taylor for coming on. We had talked about doing this episode for years and we finally did it. Bread and Poppies is produced by my fantastic drug policy friend and comrade, Marcel Rambo. The music was created by the artist Pusher. You can find him on Spotify and also on TikTok where he makes really fun anti-capitalist songs. The microphone I'm using was given to me by Mark Edwards of Ultraviolet Podcast. You should check out his show as well. And thank you so much to you all for listening and for helping with comments and engagement on social media. I know that most people don't have the means to support many leftist creators, so sharing content is genuinely helpful. If you do have the means to support my work, become a patron or buy my baby some diapers from my Amazon baby registry. Yeah, I know, fuck Jeff Bezos, but we live in a society, etc., etc. You know the drill. Be well, keep up the fight, rest, and take care of yourself and your comrades. 
Remember that you can't help others if you are burned out. So treat yourself the way you treat your loved ones. I love you all. See you next time.